Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Welcome to our last episode of the year, our best of 2022 show. We've got excerpts from some of our very best episodes from throughout the year. It's kind of like watching one of those NFL films highlight reels, except without all the slow motion. Today you'll hear from author Jason Mott, New York Times columnist Tressie McMillan-Cottom, and singers Del McCurry and Mary Gaucher, among many others. One theme a lot of our guests wrestle with this year and every year is Southern identity. Most of us who grew up here have certain things that mark us as Southern, from the way we talk, to the music we play, to the TV shows we watch. In some of these excerpts, you'll hear our guests sort out the things they love about the South and the things that trouble them, and how to find some kind of balance between the two. Maybe that struggle is familiar with you, too. Let's get started. Here's one of my favorite stories from the podcast this year, told by an amazing storyteller. Jason Mott won the National Book Award last year for his novel, Hell of a Book, which tells the story of a black author on a book tour while the police shooting of a black man lingers in the background. And two boys weave their way through the narrative. One real, the other maybe imaginary. Mott grew up in eastern North Carolina, loving comic books and TV. One TV show based in the South in particular. Here's his story about that. It comes across really powerfully in the book, this idea that not just if you create, but just if you grow up black, that your life is has boundaries on it that other people's lives do not. And I wonder, in your childhood growing up in small town North Carolina, like, how soon you felt that? It was pretty soon. Like, I can't remember the exact age. I probably put it around 8, 9, 10, somewhere around there. Um, Even though I'm sure there were were hints of it before that. But, like, my mom worked – my mom tried really hard to protect me from that. And it's funny because at the time, I didn't recognize that she was – that that was what she was doing. But now looking back on it as an adult, like I can very boldly and clearly see that she was working her, her hardest to keep me innocent and like let me see the world from this colorblind, neutral state where like anything could happen and all these things didn't exist. Um, one prime example I'll give, and like, I, I love telling the story as an, as an adult looking back now, I really love telling the story. So when I was younger, um, you know, the show, one of the shows I love the most was Dukes of Hazard. You know, you got the, got the General Lee jumping across bridges every week. It was in the South. You had these two good old boys. And, like, that was my show. I absolutely loved that show as a kid. Like, what kid didn't, like, especially in the South, like, what kid didn't love that show? Obviously, <laughs> the General Lee has some specific iconography. You got a big rebel flag on the top of it. But the show, you know, the show wasn't about racism. It was just about, at least as particularly to me as a kid, it was just about these two dudes running from Moss Hog and jumping, you know, jumping over bridges with this cool car. So I love the show so much. I wanted these um, Dukes of Hazard bed sheets, and my mom, I swear, bless her heart, I love her so much. Now looking back on, it, like she went out and bought me these Dukes of Hazard bed sheets that I slept <laughs> on for years. It had Duke and Bo and Daisy and like the the General Lee and the flag and all that kind of stuff on it. 
And I slept on these sheets for years, uh, completely in this space of like not knowing the symbolism and the reality of what I was doing. And so you fast forward to me as an adult. And I was talking to my mom. Somehow this topic came up and she said, you wouldn't believe like she said, when I went and bought those sheets, there was this white lady who wrote me up and we had the longest kind of weird moment where like she here I was this black woman buying these generally sheets and she stood there and gave me the oddest look that I've probably ever gotten. But she she said, but you loved that show so much. and You didn't know any better. And this was all that you wanted. So how could I deny you that? Some days it seems like Tressie McMillan Cottom is everywhere. She's a columnist for the New York Times and author of books such as the essay collection Thick. She's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, and she's a recipient of one of the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grants. She's a Charlotte native who has spent a lot of time thinking about Southern cultural values. For a great example, go find her essay on the meaning of Dolly Parton. In this excerpt, Tressie talks about the Southern accent she tried to lose, then decided to embrace. I read somewhere, maybe in one of your essays, that at some point in your career, you took classes to try to get rid of your Southern accent. Yes. <laughs> and I'm wondering whether you that came from some feeling or some wish that you could sort of cleanse yourself of your Southernness, mm -hmm. whether for professional reasons or personal reasons or what. I think there was definitely, and there still is, um, you know, one upside, I think, maybe of the Internet is it's given us more counter stories about what's possible, what um, authority sounds like, what success looks like. Um, but it is still really true that there are so many ideas bound up in this accent. Um, you know who it mattered to my to a lot? It mattered to my mom a lot. She wanted to send me to finishing school to to try to counter the accent and she was always so that, so this was not your idea no no I, as most things until age 25 i didn't have a single idea that was my own are you kidding me <laughs> all of my ideas were inherited from my mother my grandmother <laughs> i don't think i had an independent idea uh until i was way down the line um but yeah we definitely and it's because she had gotten that message that there is a voice of an educated cultured person and it certainly wasn't the one that says y'all or says ain't or fits into or any of those things um i came to love what southernness could describe that non-southern dialects couldn't if I gave up my accent, there were just so many things I couldn't describe anymore. I couldn't describe points in time where you were almost somewhere, but not quite, but could be, right? That's what fixing to is. Uh, it's going to happen. <laughs> it is known to happen. <laughs> it has not happened yet, <laughs> right? And there were, there were these figures of speech that just didn't exist um, without the Southern language, but it absolutely shaped how other people saw me that I think that is still true it is true in my writing it is true in my public work um you know one of my constant fights uh at something like the New York Times in copy editing is my voice quote unquote my voice and I know what they mean when they say it 
right? I know what's being said when that happens. Are they not letting ink through in the new right. rooms? Though? No, they're not. And it's an ongoing joke uh, because they take it out and I put it right back in. Then you take it out and I put it right back in. Um, and I keep winning. I keep winning uh, because it resonates with an audience, right? And if you do that enough, you'll end up, you know, you get enough clout where you can win. But the fact that it just feels so viscerally wrong to people is the thing. It's just a, it's just a gut reaction. Cause sometimes I'll ask them, well, what else would you say? Give me an alternative. And they don't have one. And do you feel like now that you've broken through and had some measure of success, do you, do you find yourself being more Southern? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so clear to me that this is a function of class that it's not even funny. The more you, (laughs) um, because, you know, the point where you feel the resistance to your Southerness the most is with gatekeepers, right? Um, You know, it's the person interviewing you for the job. It's the person at the restaurant or the hotel who acts like they can't understand you. I love those people. Um, You know, as if I'm speaking in a Scottish brogue, you know, they just can't understand me here in uh, California. And, (laughs) but as it turns out, um, they understand you just fine when they understand your economic position. Uh, And I do laugh about that sometimes that I have perversely had more freedom to be Southern, the less my economic profile looks like a Southerner's. Mary Gaucher writes simple songs with hard edges and deep abiding truths. She's been a singer-songwriter for nearly 30 years after climbing out of a hole of drug and alcohol addiction. Somehow she made it out with her hope and sense of humor intact. Gaucher grew up in New Orleans, but she was living in Boston when she got sober and started thinking about becoming a musician. In this excerpt, she talks about an experience with an Atlanta duo that changed her life. I want to ask about something in your book. You know, this is a podcast about the South, and and um, you had a transformative experience um, with the Indigo Girls from Atlanta, and I, I wanted to if you could just kind of tell that story, it feels like that experience with them, hearing them and then going to see them was a a big moment in your life. Very hard to explain because I don't, I tried very hard to articulate it in the book. Okay. Uh, And and I can tell you what happened, but I can't tell you how it happened. Um, It's, it's deeper than my ability to understand. So I heard my, my first Indigo Girls song uh, being played on WUMB radio in Boston. I lived in Boston and had a Louisiana-style restaurant there. I was a chef in a Cajun joint that I was part owner of. Uh, and I was a very serious drug addict and alcoholic. I had a big, big monkey on my back. Big, big problem with booze and dope ever since I was 13. And I was driving home from work and UMB played the Indigo Girls song off of that first record, Strange Fire, I think is the name of it. Uh, and the sound of it um, wormholed its way into my soul somehow. And I sat in front of the house with it playing. After I got home, it I just let it play out. 
and I heard their name uh, and it just cracked me. I just ended up banging my fists on the steering wheel and I didn't know why. I had never written a song. I had never thought of myself as a songwriter. I was part owner of a restaurant. I was, you know, doing okay financially, but I was unhappy. Um, and something about hearing their voices pushed on that unhappiness. And I didn't know what it was trying to tell me. It was a whisper from the future somehow that I couldn't understand. All I knew was it hurt. It really hurt. Uh, and then, I, you know, they got their record deal and they blew up. Closer to Fine was a hit. And as it was blowing itself up, I got to go see them uh, at the Paradise, Paradise uh, Bar uh, uh, in Boston. And... Um, Man, it hurt even more to see them. I got physically sick. Uh, and it wasn't because they weren't great. They were great. But seeing them uh, and watching the audience scream like the Beatles were on stage um, did something to me that I still couldn't understand or explain. Um, and um, I think in the book, I try to make sense of it. What I think happened, and uh, I don't know how I knew this, because I still hadn't written a song yet. I wasn't a songwriter yet. I was a chef in a successful restaurant, newly sober, when I went to see him. I was newly sober. I'd been sober a very short amount of time. Um, having been pulled over for drunk driving, arrested, I got sober in 1990. Um, I think what happened was seeing two obviously gay women on stage, uh, uh, being cheered on and screamed at by girls, um, something inside me knew that any blockade I had around the excuse of gay women can't do this had just been removed. And uh, I, it blew my mind. And not too long after that, I was brought to an open mic uh, and I realized, oh, my God, I want to get on that stage and be a songwriter. And the, I started putting the pieces together. Our souls know what our minds have not yet revealed to us, I think, is the, is the truth of that story. We're going to take a short break here for a message. But after that, we'll be back with more of Southbound's Best of 22. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, this is Tommy. Before we get back to this episode... I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to Southbound's Best of 2022. Another musician I enjoyed talking to this year is the bluegrass legend Dale McCoury. 
Dell was 82 when I talked to him back at the beginning of the year. And he's still making records and going out on tour with a band that includes his two sons. In this excerpt, Dell talks about the music that made him want to become a musician. Well, I was going to say, every time I hear about somebody who becomes an artist of one type or another, it's sort of split half and half. Like, a lot of people are drawn to something, you know, drawn to play music or paint or whatever. And then a lot of other people are trying to escape from something, you know, trying to get out of one kind of life or another. How do you feel like you land on that, on that spectrum? Well, you know, I was, I think music was really big with me from the first time I can remember uh, playing or anything, you know, it was always a big part of me because I don't know why. And I heard Earl Scruggs. That's really what, I think that's what, that was the biggest thing, biggest event in my life to make me want to play music was hearing Earl Scruggs. And I thought, I'm going to try to do that, whatever it is he's doing. <laughs> and Now, was that, did you hear him on the radio or did you see him somewhere? My older brother bought a record of Flat and Scruggs in 1950. And I would have been 11 then. And uh, when I heard him play that, uh, that was new to a lot of us guys, you know, uh, people like Sonny Osborne and J.D. Crow, you know, we're in that, we're all in the same age group. And uh, we all heard Earl Scruggs in the beginning and Don Reno too. Those two were pioneers at that, that uh, three finger style playing, you know. And uh, so they were, they were probably, those guys were probably 10 years or 15 years older than us. And so we were, we were probably nine, 10, 11 when we first heard them, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Yes. I, I wanted to play banjo and I did for 10 years. <laughs> and then Bill Monroe made me play the guitar and sing lead. Beth Macy has done some of the most important journalism in the South for the past decade, documenting the opioid crisis from the users dying in droves all the way to the profiteers of the pharmaceutical companies. Her book, Dope Sick, became an Emmy-winning limited TV series starring Michael Keaton. This year, she published a follow-up of sorts called Raising Lazarus, which highlights the astounding and heartbreaking work being done by caregivers on the front lines of the crisis. Many of them are volunteers who spend countless hours of time to make sure addicts get the help they need, and sometimes, if they're lucky, they claw their way out of the opioid grip. In this excerpt, Beth tells the story of one of those volunteers, a man doing the Lord's work in the town of Hickory, North Carolina. You have all these incredible characters throughout the book who are doing, you know, the Lord's work in one way or another. And uh, the right at the beginning, you kind of start out with this guy named Tim Nolan over in Hickory. Could you sort of describe his, you know, drive-by harm reduction program? Yeah. I mean, if there's a saint that works on the earth, it's Tim Nolan. I didn't know him at all. When I first met Michelle, who runs Olive Branch, which is the nation's only queer, biracial, faith-based harm reduction group in the nation, 
uh, her goal at the time wasn't just, she already had three needle exchanges going, but she said, you know, the Holy Grail would be to be offering low barrier buprenorphine, which means like, we're going to get you on this medication assisted treatment, buprenorphine, methadone. We're going to get it to you wherever you are, whether it's at a homeless encampment or under a bridge or at a McDonald's parking lot. And so it took me a while to get Michelle and them to trust me, right? Because, you know, they've had to really scrap hard for legitimacy in where they are. And um, so I was down there at the, you know, it's in a, it's in a double wide behind a church in Hickory at her needle exchange. And this guy comes in and he's, um, cause they, they have a suicidal patient who, uh, so he he leaves his job and he comes in and it's Tim Nolan. And I've already heard about him. He's the one now that's going out and doing this low barrier buprenorphine work at night after he works all day at his regular job, which is unaffiliated with Olive Branch. So he's doing this as a volunteer. And, and I say to him, uh, hey, I'm working on this book. I want to include Olive Branch. And uh, do you think I could shadow you? Forget what I said. Go out with you when you're doing your low barrier work. And he goes, you're Beth Macy, right? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, I've read your books. And then I was like, oh, oh, good. Because it took me a long time to convince Michelle that I was worthy of trust. And so then uh, he basically let me go out with them. And he is somebody who started out just handing out needles. Um, but then he realized that uh, most people didn't want to get better. They didn't even want to start the buprenorphine. So then, but what do they want? Oh, they want, they all had hepatitis C, just about all of them. They want a tested and treatment for that. So then he goes delivering that. And once they start to get a little bit better, they were like, I got to get off the needle. How can you help me? And, and then where he really comes alive is when they start helping each other. I mean, he really has a strong spiritual core and to see him, like he'll just go anywhere. He'll go into a single wide full of COVID, uncountable number of animals. Uh, you know, he'll do anything to help these folks and he loves it. And so that was really cool to see. So the book starts out in a McDonald's parking lot. This wasn't my first beginning, but once this happened, I was like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever witnessed. Medical care in a McDonald's parking lot next to the dumpster with a person in chaotic drug use who shows up high, late, and he wants to get off the needle. He says, I'm gonna die if I don't. And Tim says two things that I think, think end, up, end up being the core of the book. Uh, he'll, 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 he'll get this fella on low, uh, low cost buprenorphine. He'll call it in the next day to the one Walgreens he's got a relationship with. But he tells him two things. One, you can get better because we've just lost so much hope about this, including people with OUD, they, they've lost their hope about it. Most Americans think are just writing them off. And two, don't disappear. And that's really the crux of harm reduction. Even if you relapse before I'm able to see you again next week, still come back to our appointment. If you can't make it because your car broke down, text me and I'll come to you. And it's this idea of instead of writing off this whole group of people that we've basically abandoned, we're going to bring them back into our systems of care. And when they're better, then they'll be able to come to us at the clinic. Um, so that's that was just like witnessing a miracle. Author Dan Chapman had known for years about the famous environmentalist John Muir and his work to protect the American West. 
But before Muir was famous, he took a long walk through the South back in 1869. And when Chapman discovered that, he decided to retrace Muir's steps. He even spent a night in Savannah's Bonaventure Cemetery, where Muir had important revelations that shaped the rest of his life and career. The result is a book called A Road Running Southward, which details how Southerners have treated our environment over the centuries. Spoiler alert, not that well. In this excerpt, Dan talks about how resilient the natural South still is and why it's worth saving. I know you didn't starve for five days hanging out in the cemetery, but I'm wondering what epiphanies, if any, you had in following this route. Well, I, you know, that was my initial hope in going to Bonaventure when I drove down there that first night and when I snuck in there and camped out and everything. Um, I tried to sit back, you know, and make myself think big thoughts, you know, like, okay, Muir was here. I'm going to do I'm going to have these great epiphanies and, you know, these great earth shattering ideas. And of course, they didn't come whenever you want them and everything, just in spite of the amount of rye I was drinking. But eventually, you know, I was able to, to sort of collect, coalesce, crystallize my thoughts. And, you know, and, and this was also, you know, my thoughts that were crystallized throughout the course of reporting and writing this book. You know, a couple of things and just very quickly. One, we really screwed up the, the South that we love and call home, you know, on any number of fronts. Two, but, you know, there is so much here still that's worth conserving, protecting, and saving. And, you know, we have just such an incredible, and I keep coming back to this, amount of natural beauty and biodiversity. Um, I just jotted a few things down here. We have 90% of the nation's bird species pass through here. Uh, Two-thirds of the fish live here. One-third of all plant species are in the South. 90% of the mussels. There are more salamanders here than just about anywhere in the world. So, I mean, these are all things that I don't think people realize, but we are very much richer and better off for having them in our backyard. Our final excerpt in the show comes from author Casey Parks. Casey grew up in small town Louisiana, and she was shunned by her church and some of her family when she came out as gay. But her grandmother told her the story of a neighbor she had known decades before, a woman who had lived as a man. Casey told the story of that person, as well as her own story, in the book Diary of a Misfit. The South is full of misfits of one type or another, and we are not always kind to the misfits among us. Casey lives in Portland now, but here she talks about how much she misses the South, despite everything. Did you feel that sort of southernness intensely when you first moved out to Portland? Did it, did people bring it up or did you feel self-conscious about it? When I first moved to Portland, I, I really did not fit in. And I had never really been out of the South, really not even for a vacation. So I didn't understand how much of my behavior was Southern. Some of it I think was also like a class issue. Like I, I came from a really poor background, so I did not know how to act quote unquote right I had never eaten a fresh vegetable before I moved here not once I had eaten canned (laughs) peas and canned green beans I don't think I'd even actually eaten frozen vegetables I thought broccoli cheese soup was a vegetable I mean I guess it kind of is (laughs) 
Um, I interrupted people all the time. I still, my preferred mode of communication is everyone interrupting each other, (laughs) but that's not how it is in the South. People, I still get told all the time that I'm way too direct, but that's just how I grew up. Like everyone says exactly what they think. And it made me feel like there was something wrong with me for my first couple of years here. Like I just felt very low class and uncouth and... It was hard because I felt like, wow, I don't belong in Louisiana because I'm gay. And so I've moved out here to the gayest city on earth and I don't fit in because I don't know how to act. And I don't know what an artichoke is. And I've never tasted lamb before. It took a long time for me to, to know how to do any of those things. And then a long time after that for me to come back and say, no, it's okay for me. To act how I how I grew up acting. I mean, it's good to eat some vegetables, but it's okay for me to be direct. It's okay for me to bring you food if you're sick. It's okay for me to smile at you in the street. It does not mean I'm up in your business. And then, and honestly, it's okay for me to be up in your business. Like we could all use a little bit more humanity. I mean, that's one of the things that kind of irks me sometimes is that people think, oh, the South is this really hateful place. It's also a lot more human sometimes than I think Portland can be. Like, there is something very warm and touching about when you're in the elevator with people, they talk to you. If I ride the elevator with people in Portland, like, no one is going to say hi. They're not going to look at you. We're going to all pretend you don't exist. And I, I actually just miss that regular acknowledgement of humanity, even if the Southerners can disagree on the bigger things. Like, it's nice when you walk down the street for someone to wave at you and just say, I see you're alive and like, I'm going to acknowledge that and send some bit of kindness to you, you know. It is a great blessing for me to get to do these interviews all year long. I learned so much from talking to so many interesting Southerners. And I'm reminded again and again what fertile ground there is in the South. Not just for okra and tomatoes, but for imagination and creativity and brilliance. We still have a long way to go. We have to keep trying to get past our inherited prejudice, acceptance of poverty, resistance to outside advice, even when it's good for us. We live in a complicated, contradictory place. To make a better South, we have to commit to resolving some of those contradictions and making life down here better for those on the edges as well as those in the middle. So many people who hate what the South has done to them love the place anyway. That's a sign of how much we have to offer here and also a sign of how much we still have to do. A new year's coming. It's time to get to work. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.